The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Not as good as Josiah, but I'll take that. Good morning. We're going to be looking at least to start from Psalm 50. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to it. I'm not going to be reading it in its entirety, but I am going to start with verse 7 and read through verse 23, which is the end of the psalm. Psalm 50, beginning with verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. These are the words of God. If I were to title this message, I would call it, uh, We're Like God, But He Is Not Like Us. And in the psalm that we just looked at, one of the things that the Lord says to the wicked is that they have engaged in all kinds of wickedness and he remains silent and he identifies Um, an error in their thinking, you thought I was like, one like yourself. Well, today in the brief time that we have, I want us to consider how it is that we might be prone to that same error of misconceiving of God as though he is one like us. In A.W. Tozer's book, 
the knowledge of the holy, he writes this. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may be buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. Tozer was saying that though I might give assent and profess that I believe certain things by creedal statements, that it's only after a period of this uh, painful self-probing that we often really come to grips with what it is that we really believe about God. And so this morning, I'd like to guide us in some self-probing, not for the purpose of pain, but maybe to unearth some of the things that we may be entertaining about God that are unworthy of him and unhelpful to us. And so what I would like us to look at is a particular way that we're prone to think of God as one of ourselves. Now, I want us to think about how we do that, particularly as it relates to our reasoning about particular ethical situations. One way that I think that we are prone, even as believers, to think of God as though he is one like ourselves, is whenever we conclude or assume that whatever is wrong for us is likewise wrong for God. When we hold him to standards that rightly apply to us, we are conceiving of him as one like ourselves. And I want to make a case that God's commands to us do not apply to him in the same manner that they apply to us. Indeed, they cannot. So what I want us to think about is how we often and unthinkingly, we might reason this way. This would not be right for me to do. Therefore, it would not be right for God to do. Does that make sense? Well, in order to see how this unfolds, and some of you have um, been on the receiving end of some of these questions already, but um, I think it's helpful to ask some questions about things that apply to us and then ask them of God. So, the first question is, is it wrong for me, is it improper for me to steal? Not a trick question. <laughs> Not. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. 
yeah, it's, it's wrong for me to take what does not belong to me. Now, I want to ask you another question, but I want you to think about it before you don't answer it, because I don't expect you to answer it. But is it wrong for God to steal? He can't steal. That, that's a, a, a trick question because it's impossible for God to steal. But why is it impossible for God to steal? Well, Psalm 24 tells us in verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness, everything in it, and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas. It is impossible by virtue of who and what God is for him to steal at all because he owns everything. Because he created everything. Twice in Genesis 14, when we read the narrative of Abram, after he has rescued his nephew Lot, and he is blessed by Melchizedek, this um, high priest of God, twice in Genesis 14, God is referred to as God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, owner. He has rightful claim to everything because he has made it. And in the psalm that I read portion of for us this morning, in verse 12, God tells his people, if I were hungry, if such were possible, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. So we see that there's at least one instance where something that applies to us does not apply to God. Indeed, it cannot apply to God because he's God. And as the creator and as the upholder, the sustainer and preserver of everything that is, he possesses everything. Paul in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, when he is in Athens says to the Greek philosophers there, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, let's try another question. Is it improper is it wrong for me to take another life? Now, I understand that if we had more time, we could talk about the issues related to situation, circumstances where there is authorized taking of life. The biblical command is a command against murder, not killing in general. But generally speaking, it is wrong for me to take another life. Why? Because that's not my life. And the answer to that question, is it improper for God to take life, is related to the passages that we just looked at. When God takes life, he is not infringing upon any, anything 
he's not doing anything improper. Why? Because that life is his. And when we think to ourselves, well, that would be wrong for me, and then we just immediately transfer that to God, unbeknownst to us, what we're really doing is saying, there's this standard that both God and us must meet in order to be counted as righteous or good. And the moment we do that, what we are saying, though we may not be intending to say it, is God is one like ourselves. Well, one more question. Is it improper, is it wrong, for me to delight in myself above everything else? And not only for me to delight in myself above everything else, to call other people to delight in me above everything else. That would be most improper. But why? Well, it would be improper because I am not, despite what my wife might think, the most delightful being in existence. <laughs> She's not gonna listen to the podcast. But in, but in seriousness, the impropriety of that, to, to expect, to desire, to delight in myself above all else, and then to call other people to do likewise, would be improper because I am not the most perfect, delightful being in existence. For me to delight in myself in that way, and to call others to do likewise would be to engage in falsehood. It is to engage in deception, both of myself and others. But what of God? For God to delight in himself above all else is simply him being truthful. For God to find his greatest joy in his manifold, infinite perfections is simply him assessing things as they actually are. And his calling us to delight in him, do not be mistaken, is not because there's some deficiency or void, something in him that is empty that we fill by praising him, but he is calling us to delight in what is most delightful. His call for us to worship him is not for his benefit. It is for ours. And it is because of his jealousy for his glory in the sense that he would have himself and us value things properly. So when we read in the Psalms or when we read in the rest of scripture these calls to worship the Lord, to praise him and so forth, 
if that causes us discomfort because somewhere deep down we are thinking, well, that wouldn't be right for me. We are thinking of God as though he is one like ourselves. We are losing sight of what theologians refer to as the creator-creature distinction. It's not just a matter that God is bigger than us. It is a matter of God is qualitatively different from us. We're not talking about simply a quantitative difference, bigger, mightier, and so forth. No, we are talking about God who is transcendent and qualitatively distinct from us. C.S. Lewis in an essay called God in the Dock. And when you hear dock here, don't think marina. The dock in the days of Lewis is the place in a courtroom where a, uh, an accused person sat during the trial. Lewis makes a contrast between ancient times and modern times. And he says, in the, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He, man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to him. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. When um, you go to the amusement park, you are probably familiar with those little cutouts or lines that say, you must be this tall in order to get on this ride. When we think that somehow what is wrong for us is necessarily likewise wrong for God, it's as though we are saying there is a line above both of us and it's a matter of whether or not God reaches it. And in so doing, we are thinking as though God is one like ourselves. But the biblical revelation says there is no line above God. God is the line. In Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, he has a number of articles and questions that um, people raise that he responds to. And in his third article, it deals with whether any creature can be like God. And as is the case as his method, he expects and he anticipates objections and he responds to them. And to the, the objection that no, um, Creatures can't, in any sense, be like God. He, he says this, or this is the objection he anticipates. 
again, the likeness between similar things is reciprocal, since like is like to like. Hence, if any creature were like God, God would also be like a creature. But this is contrary to the words of Isaiah 40, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? And to that objection, Aquinas answers as follows. When we affirm that a creature is like God, we are not in any way compelled to say that God is like a creature. As Dionysius says, there may be mutual likeness between two things of the same order, two things of the same kind might have mutual likeness, but not between a cause and its effect. Hence, we say that an effigy or a statue, an effigy is like a man, but not that a man is like his effigy. Similarly, we can say in a sense that a creature is like God, but not that God is like a creature. Why is this important? This is important not for the purpose of just academic theological fun. This is important because if we fail to recognize the qualitative difference that exists between God as creator and ourselves as his creatures, we will fail to worship him properly. We will fail to appreciate the greatness of his mercy and his grace. Everything that I have said about God is true of each member of the Godhead. Everything that we have looked at is true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, without whom nothing that has come into existence has come into existence. The creator of all things with his Father and the Spirit took to himself human creatureliness for us and for our salvation. And in that humanity, humbled himself, took the form of a servant, was obedient as a man on our behalf to his father received the penalty that our sins deserved, was raised victoriously from the grave. And it is this God, high, lofty, majestic, transcendent, who promises all who trust in Christ, your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have a paltry view of God and you will have a paltry view of grace. Big God, amazing grace.
Let's pray. Our Father, we do acknowledge that we are inclined to not give you the honor that you are due and to reason in very unsanctified ways, failing to acknowledge you as the transcendent creator and ourselves as your creatures. We have brought you into judgment by acting as though you are subject to what it is that you have called for from us, as though you were like one, like us. Father, we pray that you would elevate, expand our vision of you, and that we would take our proper place as your creatures, and for all who are in Christ as your redeemed sons and daughters, and that we would revel in your mercy, in your grace, that we, as we contemplate the qualitative difference, the infinite qualitative difference that exists between you and ourselves, that it would enhance the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and in so doing, liberate us progressively from the lesser fears that so captivate our hearts. And all of this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.